What's up, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. We're an SLP couple from California with three boys and a passion for finding better ways to support autistic kids. I'm Chris Winger, better known as Speech Dude, and I'm a neurodivergent high school SLP and the creator of The Dassel, the dynamic assessment of social-emotional learning. And I'm Jesse Ginsberg, a sensory integration-trained SLP, owner of a top-rated speech therapy clinic in Los Angeles, and the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Programs for parents and therapists. Join us weekly to learn neurodiversity-affirming ways to support social-emotional development and regulation in autistic kids. Are you ready to make the shift? everyone and welcome to making the shift we are so excited it looks like i've be been here. in the sun a lot i look a little bit red i've been telling you that every single day mandy the makeup artist you send her on over i just need a little bit of a okay a little touch up <laughs> anyway shall we recap the most exciting thing that ever happened to us in our lives i say we do over the weekend only because we've been getting so many questions and messages about this instant in incident incident situation. I lost my train of thought for a second, which is meeting Justin Bieber. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a story to this. We're not going to talk too much about it. We'll give you the long um, version. Uh, we'll give you the Cliff Notes version of the story from set from uh, the weekend. Yeah, which is long story short. We ended up going to this farm that we were not even going to go to in the first place. We had like a million things holding us up. We missed the exit. Lots of things happened. And it all happened that it all happened that we ended up inside the chicken coop with Justin and Haley Bieber. Yeah, absolutely. And the timing and the odds of the way everything unfolded was just um, happened to be literally the right place at the right time. And the craziest thing is that I've actually thought about if we ever meet him, would we get a picture of him and Jack? Because they have the same birthday, our baby and Justin Bieber. And but like I've actually had that thought and then had to tell myself, OK, you will never meet him. Why are you even having that thought. And now we officially have it. The picture of Jack and Justin. Jack and Justin, the two J's. Yeah. And had a short conversation with them about, uh, you know, Jack's name and him sharing his story about his grandpa's name being Jack and his dad's middle name being Jack. And I'm um, just uh, him and Haley were super cool. And so that was, uh, that made, made for a good weekend and a, and yeah. a good memory. That and was as, the key. I was going to say as security guards didn't have to fight us off. We, we stepped away willingly. I don't blame a security guard though, because when I walk up to people that I oh, don't mess with that Most guy. Most people want a security guard when you walk up to them. <laughs> they think I'm the security <laughs> guard. Yeah, right. But anyway. So, anyway, uh, that's been fun. On to tonight's topic, which is something we both really love to talk about, which is sensory strategies across the lifespan. And this really came out of so many questions that I get all the time about well, this child is so young, how do I support their sensory needs? Or I get the opposite question, which is they're much older. So what do I do now to support their sensory needs? And we definitely see that as kids get older or as their level of awareness changes, our approach will change as well. And one thing, so I guess we kind of wanted to talk about 
what it would look like for younger kids versus older or kids um, who are just kind of getting into that whole regulation thing, which is, of course, one of the main things that when kids are younger is we have a very, very deep focus on co-regulation, right? So we are there helping that child calm down. And the thing is that people think that um, self-regulation is the goal. Like how often do you hear, even in preschools, like, oh, he just needs to go sit over there to so that he can self-regulate. Or we will hear people say that with two-year-old kids, like, oh, just go let him self-regulate and basically like let him cry. Right. And that's just not how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to need other people to help us regulate. So that's the thing is that when we are working, especially with younger kids, there has to be such a strong focus on co-regulation because co-regulation is how we develop self-regulation. Self-regulation doesn't just pop up one day and it is definitely not something that we are just born with. It's something that develops over time through warm relationships with caregivers. So knowing that co-regulation is so important and really being able to co-regulate. I'm just thinking of like Jack when he was upset. Right. You know? Yeah. And then they learn, they learn to just like come to you, maybe give you a hug, maybe not. But just like the fact that you are responsive is what gets him to regulate. And that's always helpful for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's a major thing. Even if we've had a rough day at work or we've had a long IEP meeting or we had a student that was um, someone who needed additional support and we also needed our own ability to co-regulate, um, that happens where I'll leave work going, okay, time to co-regulate. So I'll call Jesse. <laughs> yeah. So he brings up a great point, which is that you know, although we do have a very heavy emphasis on co-regulation when kids are young, that is never something that goes away. The need to regulate with others never goes away. Like Chris said, calling your significant other after work because you had a long day, um, venting to your mom, you know, it's just something that we always do. This is something that will be for everybody across the lifespan indefinitely. That's just the thing about co-regulation. Yeah. So there should never be an age where um, kids get to a certain age where you're like, okay, well, they don't need us anymore. You go deal with your own stuff and regulate, you know, knowing that we always have to be there for our clients, regardless of their age to help them regulate. Right. I agree. So I think another big difference is that when we're working with younger kids, we have to learn what their sensory differences are. And a lot of times we do that through talking to parents and observing the child. So those are great ways to learn more about sensory differences. Whereas when students get older, we get to start having those conversations with them and it's a total game changer. And I think one that so many people skip over is they they don't have start to have these conversations. But what we've heard and what we heard from guests, autistic guests we've had in the past, Jamie Boyle, Chloe Estelle, is that when we don't talk to kids about their sensory needs and differences, then they don't have a label for those. And then they really struggle to understand themselves. So having those conversations can be such a game changer like you did today. 
I did today. I do it all the time. Yeah. And I think that's a valuable thing. One of the things that is really important to note too, which we talked about many, many episodes ago on intrinsic motivation, which um, builds on autonomy, is when we are talking to our students about sensory preferences, whether it's, you know, preferences on auditory, visual, tactile, things like that, is really having them come up with what their preferences are rather than us making assumptions on what their preferences are. What that does is a couple things. So it builds trust because they're able to come up with what they're finding their sensory needs and preferences are in a variety of contexts. And that is going to make them feel like they're part of their own therapy. That's going to drive that motivation if they're coming up with it. So the way we do that also is kind of the way we frame our questions, you know, like, so when you're in class, what might be some of these things on this checklist that Jesse has will that, that go along with your visual supports and visual needs. So when they can come up with what it is, and then we follow it up with what types of things do you think would help you to accommodate those sensory differences, sensory needs. They're the ones coming up with the solution. And I'm telling you, isn't that the way human behavior all works? All of us were like, I got to come up with my own things that my challenges or my preferences are. And then I got to come up with my own solutions. Like we all want to be able to come up with it. They're like, oh, I just thought of that. Yeah, That's like a driving force in itself. It's like when I just like secretly plant photos of the bachelor like around you so that you think that coming up with watching it is your idea oh my gosh i'm like yeah absolutely <laughs> just kidding he refuses i can't but um so chris did was a guinea pig today because today our sensory self-assessment was released which is for all the therapists who are trained in our sensory program so i sent it to school with him and he was able to do one of these self-assessments with a student, which is he a freshman? He's in high school. Okay. No, first year in high school, freshman in high school. No, I don't, you know, when I talk about students and clients too, I'll just kind of like, sometimes I'll, I'll paint a picture on a, on a, on a, okay, on a, on a bigger scale. I don't know if you were trying to be, if you were just not listening to my question. Oh, no, I was. Yeah. To... I was saying he's in high school. So he's a high school yeah. student. Okay. Um, for sake of conversation, he's a junior. Okay. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Where does he live? Okay, that was a test. You passed. Passed. So um, anyway, you had this student who's definitely been having some trouble, even though it's just the beginning of the school year, some sensory related stuff too. So Chris had him fill out this self-assessment, which in our self-assessment, they go through each of the senses and it's complicated. I won't get into it. But what we learned as looking through this was that he fell into the category of having a very low threshold for sensory input. So as a reminder, that means that it only takes a little bit of sensory input for him to notice something or for him to respond to something. So one of a couple of the more, more important ones that he marked and you guys talked about was um, for visual input and then for auditory. So hearing. So he has this low threshold for visual input and auditory input for sounds. And he 
ended up showing that he had a passive regulation style, meaning he lets all of this sensory stimulation happen and then he reacts to it. So people who have a passive style are more likely to kind of let all of that sensory input happen and start to get really uncomfortable, start to get dysregulated, overwhelmed, but don't act on it so quickly as people who have an active style. So I thought that was interesting because you've been talking about how he, you've been seeing him like in the hall and he's just really, really dysregulated by the time you see him. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the conversation we were just having before this was, you know, a classroom is one of the most stimulating environments when it comes to sights and sounds. So for this boy, he probably has, I mean, he has a low threshold. It doesn't take a lot to bother him. And then he's in this environment where it's like extremely overstimulating, but he's not actively looking to get out of that environment. So then by the time he's in that environment for longer and longer, he gets really dysregulated. And then you see him later. Yeah. So you guys talked about, I know, like some solutions and stuff, right? We did. Yeah, we came up with a couple of, uh, well, actually some really good stuff. And again, yeah, it's like him coming up with his own solutions for those types of things, which are really helpful. Yeah. So like one of the things I think you said he mentioned was a lot of like that he gets really distracted with noises. When, yeah. So exactly in the uh, classroom setting when he's trying to have a conversation with somebody or somebody's saying things, if there's people on the outer parts of the conversation, it's really distracting for him. The little sound that the fluorescent lights make within our classrooms tend to bother him and disrupt him. So um, I just ask him, hey, what do you think might be some strategies or some things that can help you to accommodate that? And he said, you know, actually, when I wear my hood in class, it tends to block out some of the sounds behind me, um, which made me think about maybe some of my other students enjoy that too. Um, but he said maybe using some of his uh, AirPods during times of teacher will allow that. Um, preferential seating. Um, you know, if the classroom does get really loud, we talked about having a card that was a quick break card. And I know those are fairly common, you know, but it's just like one of those things where he doesn't have to verbalize or raise his hand. He can just kind of go over to the teacher, hand the teacher the card, and then have a place to go chill out for five minutes if, you know, the senses or his uh, sensory needs are starting to get a little bit heightened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, those are some good accommodations that can flow between all of the classrooms and um, really helpful for him. Yeah, and I love that you always talk about how, you know, the goal is for the child to advocate for themselves, not for like the parents to have to always do it for them. And of course, when kids are young, we might do a lot of that, a lot of modeling and a lot of advocating for our kids because we have to, and we want them to stay safe and be comfortable. And it's cool that that responsibility gets to shift as kids grow up and get older and can start to advocate for themselves. Yeah. And sitting down. So like a student like him um, is still developing that ability. I shouldn't say ability, but he's still developing the comfort level of even being in the classroom. So the self-advocating can tend to create fear of, well, I want to advocate for myself, but I don't want to 
<laughs> I fear talking to the teacher asking for these things. So we're kind of at that stage. So the way that looks right now for him, um, we're trying to do a blend of things, but him and I today worked on a Google doc of, okay, what are your sensory needs according to the self sensory uh, self checklist? And then let's write the things that you told me out that would help you. So then we can draft literally a couple bullet points, which are when um, I'm in class and there are some loud sounds or if the class gets really loud, um, I, it can tend to, um, you know, make it challenging for me at times, maybe stepping out for a break or using my headphones or using my, um, if I could put my hoodie on during that time, would that would be a great accommodation in class. So now we have the record of it, but he can also take that form. And in our district, I know it's different across the states, but we have all of the students have an, an email account. So it's connected with Gmail. So he could send this to his teachers in advance. So he doesn't have to feel like he has to go talk to him in advance, or he could walk before class and hand the teacher this. So the teacher now has this coming directly from the student. It's not coming from me. It's not coming from mom and dad or a caregiver at home. And what this does is it builds empathy from the teacher. The teacher all of a sudden goes, oh, thank you so much for giving me a heads up, man. You know what? I, I'm going to accommodate you. And so this really sets a solid rest of his year because if the teacher now feels connected, the student will now feel like they have trust. Isn't that what we try to build most in our students? An environment that they feel safe, secure, and that they can trust. So, I mean, all of these things kind of work together synonymously to build up for a successful year. Yeah. And you just gave me flashbacks. I had like anxiety thinking about it. Were you like this as a kid? Like when I would have to raise my hand to go to the bathroom in class, like I could not do that. You probably didn't care. Well, yeah. I mean, I was, I was a little different. I wouldn't even <laughs> raise my hand. <laughs> yeah. like, but I remember then I had a teacher and it took until four, but so I would just hold my bladder, right? Until whatever I had to. And then because I would not want to raise my hand and ask to go to the bathroom. And then in fourth grade, I had a teacher who said, you don't need to ask me to go to the bathroom. If you want to go to the bathroom, just go stand over by the sink next to the door and just wait for me to look at you. So I make sure I know I see you and then you can go. And it just changed my world. But also that's like when I started meeting up with my friends in the hall and because you take advantage, but you know, that's right. It was a good idea and it's a different way. And someone wrote in the comments, my son's limited verbally, but can answer yes or no questions. So I've started asking him if he likes something or not. So at least he can let me know. Absolutely. And that's definitely why we bring up multiple ways that, you know, kids can advocate for themselves because it definitely does not need to be verbally. We advocate for ourselves non-verbally all the time like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but that's kind of the last thing on the topic of advocacy is that's another thing that I hear a lot is, oh, my kid is too young to work on self-advocacy. That is an older skill. But in fact, we can work on self-advocacy from a very young age. I mean, this could be as simple as teaching a young child, baby toddler to say no, to turn their head, to say stop, to say don't, to say I don't like it. So advocacy skills can definitely start to be taught from a very, very young age. And in 
I would argue are extremely important for safety and building trust as well. So then that leads into self-advocacy as, as kids grow up and go on with their lives. Then that is one to grow on. Yeah. So this week, today's Tuesday, this week on Friday, we are hosting a free sensory patterns masterclass. I say we, but you're not involved, but I'm in spirit. You'll be supporting us. But our team is hosting a free masterclass. So make sure to sign up. We'll put the link in the description here if you are interested in coming. It's a 90-minute free webinar. If you can't make it live, it will replay next week also. But you heard us talk a lot today about low threshold and sensitivity and passive and active self-regulation. This workshop is specifically for SLPs and SLPAs. So if you're a parent, we hear you. We know you want this. We will get this to you soon as well. But for now, this workshop is for parents. So we hope that we get to see you there. And that is what we have to say about that. We appreciate you chiming in. As usual, if you get an opportunity and you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review. And if you didn't enjoy it, please don't leave a review. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we appreciate your time. We hope that you enjoy the rest of your week. Be and awesome. Stay a be a believer. Be legendary and be a believer. Bye. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe, write a review, or share it with a friend. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.